What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. For show notes from this episode, visit pivotmethod.com slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pivot Podcast. I am bubbling with joy. I'm exploding with enthusiasm this morning. You can't even see. I had to tell Andrea that we're going to have to hit record at some point because there's just so much I want to ask her. Andrea Owen and I, this is our 10-year friendiversary, everybody. 10 years. Mm -hmm. We met at CTI's coach training program back in 2008, and it's just been incredible to be on our winding parallel journeys together in that time. I'll tell you a little bit about Andrea, and then we'll jump into the show. Andrea Owen is an author, mentor, and certified life coach who helps high-achieving women let go of perfectionism, control, and isolation, and choosing courage and confidence instead. She has helped thousands of women manage their inner critic to create loving connections and live their most kick-ass life. She's a proud author of 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, BS Free Wisdom to Ignite Your Inner Badass and Live the Life You Deserve. I love Andrea's titles for things. Uh, Her second book, which is the topic of today's show, is How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, 14 Habits That Are Holding You Back from Happiness. And oh my goodness, girl, I like, we cannot, I don't even know how we're going to squeeze these topics into (laughs) the time that we have. No, Andrea has friggin' nailed it. And I'm sure this is not just for the ladies out there. So fellas, if you're still with us, keep listening. Uh, When Andrea is not juggling her full coaching practice or hosting retreats, she's busy competing in triathlons, chasing her 10-year-old son and 8-year-old daughter, or making out with her husband, Jason. Such a great bio line. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It really made me stop for a second. I was like, whoa. Cool. Okay. Um, She's also a retired roller derby player, having skated under the name Veronica Vane. Mm -hmm. How'd you come up with that name? I, you know how I, how I came up with it? I, I wanted, I, I've always loved the number, name Veronica and Vane being because I, some of the elements that I teach are around self-love. So that's where that came from. I love it. I think our homework for everyone listening to this episode is what's your roller derby name? What's your derby name? Yeah, mm-hmm. what's your derby name? Okay, there, it's even <laughs> that's like the insider version. Yeah. What's your derby name? How long did you do roller derby? I did it for about a year and then I got hurt and just never, I never went back. Yeah. That's kind of mm-hmm. why I stopped CrossFit. What'd you learn? What'd you learn from Derby? How did it change your perspective on things? I God, I love Derby. I still do. I still go to bouts, you know, here in the town that we live in when we can, my husband and I on date night when we're not making out, you know, of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but I learned, you know what I, one of the things I'll tell you what I loved about it is that was a group who accepted everyone and it didn't matter. I mean, it was the players were all shapes and sizes, all different backgrounds, different religions. It just, it, it trans women, like it didn't matter. It just, are you willing to show up and are you willing to skate and are you willing to learn and are you willing to help? Because it's um, it's player funded and everything and, and ran. So that's one of the many, many things I loved about Derby. It seems like it would really channel your inner badass too. It does. I mean, you have so many life lessons from Derby. I mean, the same with CrossFit, you know, and it's just, you have to 
you have to leave your insecurities, you know, on the bench. <laughs> you can't bring those out on the track or else you will get run over <laughs> literally. <laughs> and, you know, you're playing offense and defense at the same time in that sport. And so it's teamwork and just, oh, I just, I can't say enough about it. I'm, I, I love that sport. And, and anyone listening, like if you haven't been, well, in New York, they're Gotham Derby, like the, the one of the best teams in the nation, probably in the world. It's just incredible. Go, go to about support local roller derby. I love it. Love it. Amazing. Andrew, you've been on such an incredible journey. Even at the time that we met, you were just coming out of such a, your rock bottom, one of your rock bottom mm-hmm. of your life. And I'm sure you've told your story zillions of times now, because you also have your own podcast. But can you just catch us up with the short version of, that rock bottom moment and how it led you to start this 10 year journey and exploration into self-love and how to stop feeling like shit. Yeah. I mean, if anybody would have told me 10 or 11 years ago that I would have two books and have, you know, be talking to such incredible people like yourself, Jenny, I would have been like, no, that's not going to happen. And what happened was, is I was the funny, the kind of funny part and ironic part of it is that I, I found out about life coaching back in 2003, thought it was an incredible career and told my, my husband at the time, I said, this seems like such a cool thing to do. And I would love to do this, but I feel like people that, that are good at this would have a lot of life experience and I don't have a whole lot of life experience. Well, funny thing, two years later, (laughs) he had an affair with our neighbor. It was right around the time we were talking about conceiving our first child. We had been together for more than 13 years. I was very invested in his family and he had an affair with our neighbor and got her pregnant. and divorced me. It wasn't like, oops, I made this mistake. Can we still work it out somehow, some way? It was, no, I'm in love with this other woman. You're out. So I was basically kicked out of my marriage, but even more painfully kicked out of this family that, and it, you know, it was one of those kind of byproducts of divorce and so much grief in that, and then entered a relationship, entered a depression really, then entered quickly a relationship with someone who lied about having cancer to cover up his drug addiction that I didn't know about. And I was conned out of thousands of dollars, left my job, left my apartment and found myself. I had my, on the, I wasn't on the bathroom floor. I was on my bedroom floor in the fetal position crying. And like, how did I get here? How did I end up here? And I was 31 at the time. So it was also right around the time where my friends were all like getting married and having babies. And I just, I, I hated myself and and the choices that I had made to get me there, because that was the point where I realized I had tolerated a lot of BS and was not listening to my intuition on so many different levels. So that was really my rock bottom and where I slowly started to pick myself up. I mean, the heavens didn't open up at that moment and, and everything, you know, came out flowery and and positive. It's been, like you said, a 10, 11 year journey now at this point. And I just decided though, in that moment that I had to change my life. Mm -hmm. And what that started with was taking responsibility and and really shining the light on things uh, that weren't working for me anymore. I love your honesty. You say that you start, you went to see a therapist and you basically went in there, sat down and was like, okay, let's get this over with. Like, give me an answer. How do I, you know, move through this? How long is it going to take me to recover from this? Exactly. That's what I asked her. <laughs> right. 
And there it is. There's the, oh my gosh, Andrea outlines 14 behaviors in this book that are just, oh my, guilty, 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 you know, or like we, like inner critic, numbing out, compare and despair, self-sabotage, people-pleasing, approval-seeking, perfectionism, blame, catastrophic thinking. I mean, raise your hand if you don't confront these things on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And that so, was like my to-do list that you just <laughs> Yeah. And there you are in that moment trying to control your healing and yeah. saying, okay, yeah. So what's the quickest way to healing here? Yeah, I was proud of myself for going to therapy Absolutely. and like being ready and open to healing, but I wanted I wanted an itinerary of it. And what have you learned now? So now when when th- I mean, well actually before that, it would be how do you pull yourself out of the shame spiral? I know you did Brene Brown's Daring Greatly certification as well, so you've probably learned so much about this even looking back in hindsight, but it can be so hard not to self-blame and shame ourselves when things go haywire like that, especially when in relationships you do feel like, okay, I'm half of the equation here, or I'm the common denominator that all of these relationships have in common. Mm -hmm. That was quite a journey. And, and, you know, to add fuel to the fire, my husband left me for another woman and not only was she younger than me, yeah, they were having a baby. They even got a dog together. Like it was bad. And it so of course I went down the compare and despair. And if I had been, if I had had bigger boobs, if I was younger, if I was prettier, if I was all of these things, it's all my fault. And then I entered that other horrible relationship. Had I been smarter, you know, like I went to college, I have a science degree, like, I should know better than this. And it was a lot of, it was humiliation. It was, I was so ashamed of, of where I was. And I didn't really even start to heal from that until years later. And it it was just, it was, it was embarrassing as well. And I could, I wrote about this in the introduction. Like I could feel the discomfort of other people around me. Like they didn't even know what to say and people were saying the wrong things and bless their hearts. You know, they, it was really bad. So I don't entirely blame them, but it was, I mean, the shame was something I had never experienced before. And that I will, to answer your question, it was a long journey of, again, looking at everything and then also Yes, learning specifically about shame resilience. I'll tell you what, when I went and got that certification with Brene Brown and her her senior faculty, I kind of half joke that it flipped me upside down and shook all the change that was buried in the bottom of my pockets because oh, I and had, metaphorical change. Right. That's cool. Right. I had done a lot of work on myself and it was like more layers. I felt like I was getting to like the heart of the onion where like the big chunks were coming out and it was rough and it was humbling and, um, really brought me to, I mean, for lack of a better term, it brought me to my knee, my, to my knees and just like, okay, this is what surrender looks like when you're doing this type of work. What was the most challenging stuff that came from that? To be honest, it was, and, and if anyone's read rising strong, one of Brene Brown's books, she talks about day two. And what that's referring to is when she does her training, day two is the day that we get with, that we walk into the shame stuff. And the training was really interesting because we were at the same time being trained to be facilitators and doing the work ourselves. So it was sort of like this bounce back and forth. And I think that they did that on purpose to see if we had the resiliency to be able to, to juggle both of those things. and. The story that came out of that 
that was so pivotal for me for <laughs> great product placement, Andrea. Thank uh-huh. you. <laughs> was a story was something that happened when I was 20 and I was I was date raped. And it's still kind of hard for me to say that out loud because it was a moment in time where I had too much to drink. I was attracted to this person. He was not my boyfriend, but we were flirting heavily. And, you know, the makeout started. And then I, I, I basically had put myself willingly and consensually in that position and then didn't want to go any further. And said no over and over and over again, but never fought him off me. Never. I basically consented to get it over with because I was afraid of, um, being labeled a prude. I was afraid of him fighting back. I was afraid. I was afraid of 17 different things, which I'm sure, you know, many women listening can, can relate to this story. And, um, for, you know, for, at that point it was, 19 years had gone by and I had always kind of poo-pooed the story and just been like, Oh, like I was a jerk, you know, whatever it was. And that story came out, Jenny, like projectile vomit in, in this group that I was in of, of 10 other beautiful people also sharing their shame stories. And I was not expecting that I was not. And it was my intuition that was saying, this is the story you have been holding on to since you were 20 years old. Then I just got goosebumps because it's yeah, still Um, I had blamed myself for so long and it, and it was my body remembered and it was trauma is what it was. Cause a lot of times shame work is trauma work. So that, um, let's just jump into the deep end of the pool, right? (laughs) Which is what I like to do. What I love about you, Andrea. Yeah, I don't, I don't, you know. I don't pull any punches, but, um, yeah, that's what happened. And that, that was probably the biggest thing that came out of that weekend was that story and, and coming home and reaching out to a couple of my closest friends to witness that story. And I was crying and just, and, and telling it to people that I trusted. And I have written about it since then. And, um, it was a pretty big deal. Yeah. How do you start to excavate that. I mean, because excavating that is, it can be so scary to confront that, to feel it in your body, to release all that emotion that you and your body have been carrying for so long. And as you say in the book, you know, it's so much easier to want to numb out, mm-hmm. whether it's with food, alcohol, social media, anything. I did that for 20 years. That was really looking back at the timeline of my life. I also had two other big life moments that happened within the two years before that. So my parents got divorced and it was a surprise to me. I didn't even know they were ever having problems. They suddenly announced it. Um, and I had an abortion my senior year of high school, which I did not know if that was the right choice I wanted to make. And <clears throat> So, you know, I mean, my prefrontal cortex hadn't even fully formed by then yet. And these major life things are happening. I did not grow up in a family where we talked about the hard stuff, like many people listening probably. And so I didn't know what to do with all of this grief and confusion and frustration and, and rage. Really, I had rage. It was not anger. It was rage. So when that happened Did to me, it was rage at the time or is it only um, now that you look it was a few years see? later where I would have ragey moments to my, my boyfriend and, you know, we were in that relationship for a long time and I was taking everything out on him. Mm. So he would do something to me that wasn't very nice. And I would, I would go into these rages and it was scary. I didn't know where it was coming from. I I labeled myself as just an angry person. Hmm. I thought I was just an angry, an angry human. And what ended up, um, happening is that I, that happened to me. And that was really the beginning of my unraveling. I can see now looking back, I was like, Oh, that's when my severe codependence started. That's when my love addiction started. And in that moment, when that happened to me, my core belief that was created then was that 
my voice doesn't matter and that I don't matter. Mm. And I know that that's where all that came from. It's so powerful to look back and you're naming things that uh, I think we all, it's, it's very hard to see. I just did a, I just dove into all the codependency books this year and I kind of knew like they were waiting for me and yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to admit it and I didn't ever want to read them. I was just like, ugh, enough self-help already. But that was yeah. because what was buried under there was big stuff. And oh, I, I dreaded those books. I can't just can't even tell you. And then I was like, force myself like this is a huge blind spot. These blind spots end up controlling and affecting every single thing we do. If you don't look at yeah, them, that's the, that's the messed up thing about them. It's like you want to just avoid them. Things like codependent behavior, codependency. It, it seems like, no, no, if I just don't lift up the rug, it'll be fine. You know, <laughs> then the rug. Just <laughs> that was my family's motto. <laughs> yeah. I mean, me too. Like, oh, as you've known me for 10 years, we, uh -huh. we both have such similar, if not stories, we just have similar coping mechanisms, codependency, control, perfectionism, people pleasing. Mm -hmm. And I love you even said this line. You said um, your own therapist had to remind you 1,473 times you are not responsible for other people's feelings. Yeah. And I love your yes. humility in admitting like, OK, it took 1,472 times, you know, who's, who's counting. Yeah. <laughs> like we all... So, I would love for you to to just share where, where you've where you've reached with this because with all of these fourteen behaviors and we will dig into some more of them, but it's so hard not to want to say like okay, check fixed, but uh -huh. they do keep showing up. And even you, you know, even studying them, you've been in therapy, you've been going through so much. You're so so what? You're such a wonderful human who's just honest and authentic and kick ass. And yet, I love it's so comforting actually to read like okay. You know, you still go through these things. So what, what have you found? Let's say, let's say with codependency and people pleasing, what helps you when you catch yourself falling back into those even now? I think that I use them as red flags now. I use them as information. And, you know, one of my favorite mantras now is I, I do use the one like, well, that just happened. We were talking about that before. Like, that's what I, I use that one. And I also use, well, that's interesting. I mean, even for things like I knew I had gained weight. I don't own a scale here. Like I knew I had gained weight and I went to the doctor and it wasn't even, it was the pediatrician for my kid. And we were in the waiting room and I'm like, I'm going to weigh myself just to see. And it had been years. And I got on the scale and I saw the number and it was of course higher than it was the last time I weighed myself. And I said, well, that's interesting. So it's like, I, I use those, those are some of my favorite mantras, just kind of on a side note, but anytime I notice that I'm engaging in, I do, I'm, I'm, I can be really controlling with my husband. Like I want him to do the kids homework a certain way. He just took over. We're splitting up the laundry now. Cause for the longest time I would do it. And now I'm like, Nope, I work the same amount of hours as you do. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're going to take over some of it. And he, and he did absolutely, but he doesn't do it the way I did. And I found myself micromanaging it. And to me, that's, that is a red flag that there's something else going on that I need to look at. Sometimes I don't know what it is and I, I'm not attached to figuring it out right away. Cause that can take me on a whole nother rabbit hole of trying to control. But sometimes I do know what it is. You know, sometimes it's, I feel disconnected from him and it's making me uncomfortable. So I want to do these other things in order to ease that pain that I'm feeling, or I'm stressed out about work and therefore I am micromanaging how my husband folds socks. So it's, again, I just, I use it as, I try to use it as information. 
Yeah, I love the new the neutrality of saying, well, that just happened. Yeah. Rather than, you idiot, how could you do this? Or how could you mm-hmm. do it again? Oh, there's so much to talk about. On, on all of this stuff, and I'm kind of fascinated by this topic of spiritual bypassing mm-hmm. because it is such a tricky, slippery oh. thing. The difference between, uh, man, it's on me. Like Michael and I, my partner and I joke that my mantra for the first like six months, I've been reading all this by Ring Katie. Like no matter what was going on, I'd be like, it's on me. It's on me. Like if I was upset, you know, and, it, and I'm glad I did that. It actually changed the game. I mean, we're in the best relationship either of us has ever had because I started to own all those mm-hmm. patterns and all those things that were affecting every previous relationship. And yet it can be tricky when stuff comes up, not to go into the the constant self fixing or over analyzing. I think you yeah. call it something like the over identification, examining. Yeah, yes, mm-hmm. and over examining. So, how do you strike that balance between you know elevating yourself and like spiritualizing everything and like oh just be grateful versus feeling the feelings? I don't know if I have it easier than this because I, I definitely have friends and, and clients who overanalyze everything and they want to label everything. And I tell them to put their label makers away. You know, is this good? Is this bad? Is this, this, is this, this behavior? And, and I personally, I get tired of personal development sometimes. Like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I love having, you know, I know there's a lot of us who like hate small talk. Sometimes I love small talk. Like sometimes I love talking about like, what are you watching on Netflix? Like, that. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I can get into now. what apps are on your phone. What do you watch? What podcasts do you listen to? But I'm with you so much of the rest of it. I'm like, please no, I just can't I, right I, now. Yeah. I know for me, if I get, I feel like I get to get fatigued from all of the thinking about it. And I just know I need to take a break and, and that's what I do. So I don't know if I have some kind of chip DNA chip that makes it a little bit easier for me to walk away from the overanalyzing, or maybe it's just from sheer exhaustion of doing it for so many years. Yeah. One thing that you recently did was go on an unfollow frenzy on Instagram. I'm going to read this little passage because it will give you all a flavor for Andrea's great writing style. I just love it. Andrea says, I stopped following bypassing my inner critic, knowing full well the future of my physical, of my total physical and mental health was not dependent on Miss Bendy Sixpack Von Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, tell me your process, because I think so many people struggle. I would say if there is a struggle with social media, it's probably two things, keeping up with the sheer inundation and number of notifications we're all getting all the time. And then that compare and despair rabbit hole. So what led you on your unfollow frenzy? It was sparked by, you know, scrolling through my Instagram feed and seeing video after video and image after image of these. (laughs) It was the same woman over and over again. It wasn't the same account, but it was the same type of woman. You know, she was thin. She was blonde. She was... (laughs) She had like super colorful patterned yoga pants. Yeah, she was tan and she... She did these yoga moves that I don't even aspire to do that. Like, that's not even what I want to do. And I think it's beautiful when other people do it. It's like art to me. But I I was just, I was starting to feel not great about myself. And the the funny part about it was I had a moment of panic. And, you know, when I'm like, oh, forget it. I'm just going to unfollow all these people and just follow, you know, like Richard Simmons and, uh, (laughs) and 
I was like, oh my gosh, but if I unfollow them, then I'm never going to get to my fitness levels. It was like this ridiculous voice in my head. And so I just, I I think I, I tell that story to highlight how, again, how it, social media can we, we, I did it so I could be inspired is what I'm trying to say. And that was not inspirational to me. It was making me feel like crap. Mm -hmm. And so I unfollowed them all and then had this moment of panic of if I unfollow them, then I will surely be totally out of shape. And, oh God, it was just the insanity of it all made me laugh. And, you know, that was the story of it. So I did, I unfollowed all of them. The other thing is we, we, now these cliches are so, they're used all the time. Like don't compare your something to everyone else's highlight reel or don't compare your insides to everyone else's outside. And it's weird because I think we've all heard that, but then you describe an anecdote in the book as well. Like a picture flashed before your feet of one of your friends and she was off traveling in London and had no kids. And, and it's like, we in a second will tell a whole story about that person's life and what it means for our life and how yeah. are we doing and and so how how is that i mean is social media just designed to do this like that sometimes i feel like i'm just not powerless to resist but i i really don't enjoy spending a lot of time on the feed for this exact reason just because it's such a, a mental, like it's like going to the mental gymnastics just to right. like stay. Well, stop. yeah, and I want to make it really clear that I think we hear over and over again to like stop comparing. And I just, I think that it is, it's just like the whole like don't judge. Like we, we all do it. We yeah. judge, we compare. It's what we do. And it's an unfortunate thing that we compare. Um, our mutual friend, Jonathan Troen, was just talking about this on social media, how he was so surprised. Like when his son was born, they immediately put him into categories and were comparing him to all the other infants as, as far as his height and weight. You know, it's sad that we, that we do this in our, in our culture. And it is just the sad reality of it. So I don't want anyone listening to think that the key to their happiness is to stop completely comparing. The major win is that you are catching yourself when you're comparing and making a different choice. So like for that story that I was told in the book is, yeah, I went, it, um, it was Gabby Bernstein, by the way, <laughs> she was yeah. like, who, who I think is amazing. And she was like traveling to London. And I, and I was like, Oh my God, I'm never going to have that kind of career. And she probably like goes to the spa and, you know, eats this incredible food. <laughs> and I caught myself so quickly in that moment and told myself like, okay, well that just happened. And that's what I want for everybody. Just to be able to shut it down so quickly that you realize that you're doing it and you can not not even to tell yourself positive affirmation. So I didn't go and say like, and cheerlead myself and say like, yes, I will. Like if you do that and you can believe it and it feels good, great, go for it. I'll give you a fist pump, you know, but <laughs> I wasn't there in that moment. And my BS meter would have been like, yeah, we don't think so. So I just was like, okay, well that just happened. And I'm going to walk away and do something else or tell a, I actually called my friend Amy and told her what happened. I was like, oh my God, I went down this rabbit hole. And it was so ridiculous. And then we can laugh about it and, and move on. So like, that's the win. That's huge. That's one of the things I found too. The win is getting faster at noticing yes. when you're triggered. Mm-hmm. It's not to not ever get triggered again. It's to say, oh, Thank there you. it is. There it is. There's that little Whoop, voice. There it, is. Like, Whoop, there it is. <laughs> that's exactly what we want you to say. <laughs> totally. And oh man, if it doesn't still feel so uncomfortable. It like, really does. Oh yeah. 
But I, I, my biggest one, my biggest one that, that has reared its head this past year, because I'm in the best relationship ever that I've ever had, it, it was like, is this insecurity of other women. It's not jealousy. It's not that I wish I was them, but it's like, oh, she's so beautiful. Oh, this, oh, this, like this hypervigilance mm-hmm. about who everyone else was. And of course, Michael would be like, are you insane? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, do you, do you see how much I love you or, or how amazing you are? All these things. And in those moments, no. And when you're caught in the trigger of it, it's just this feeling that the sky is falling. But yeah. when I can step back, it's like, oh, there it is. It's happening again. Oh, my inner six-year-old is coming out or five-year-old mm-hmm. or the fear side of me. And um, what have you found for just noticing triggers more quickly? Ugh, do you triggers. think it's just experience or do you have a, a secret trick? Well, I just, I think knowing them, like you were saying, and I will say this too, and I wish I knew more brain science around it. So don't quote me as like, you know, as being, this being scientific, but I have heard around town that, (laughs) you know, it's the old part of our brain that immediately sizes up other people, you know, and it's like, is this person good or bad? Are you dangerous? Are you someone I might mate with? Do you have food? So, you know, it's like this primitive part of us where, I think that that is biological and we do size up other women who are possible threats to our mate. Mm. I think it happens. So again, it's, it's a matter of, of knowing what your triggers are and we get to a certain age and we have all had our hearts broken and those are old wounds that get reopened. And it's not anything that our partners are necessarily doing poor partners. You know, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've had to apologize to my husband. It's less now. Cause I notice it before I do it where I have gotten irritated with him or even angry at something that he's done. And it's not, and it's my stuff. It's totally my stuff. I think so many arguments start that way. And so what's helped me tremendously is knowing my triggers. And this is actually something I've learned as a daring weight, uh, facilitator is, is if you take the different areas of your life. So like, let's just take relationships for example, cause you brought that up is to take a, get out a piece of paper and write down your ideal and unwanted identities. So your ideal identities are, these are the ways that you want to be perceived ideally by other by your partner. And then we also have these unwanted identities, these ways that we would never in a million years want to be seen by our partner. Typically for women, these are, we don't want to be seen as desperate, unattractive, needy, having a lot of issues. Uh, You know, the list goes on and on. It's personal for, for everyone. And those are your triggers because inevitably you're going to fall into those unwanted identities because unfortunately we can't control how other people perceive us. We might act out or we might get judged or criticized and we, and that's where shame lives. And so instead of, um, practicing shame resilience, which is the work I do, we try harder to get to our ideal identities. We work out more, we, (laughs) you know, like all these things to try. And that's where perfectionism lives. And it's this cycle, this never ending cycle that keeps going around and around instead of knowing, knowing your triggers can change your life y'all. So get out a piece of paper, all the areas of your life, even if you just write down the ways that you would never want to be perceived in your career, in, uh, with your appearance, in your relationships as a parent, all of those areas. And that will give you so much insight to where you get hooked. Fascinating. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about boundaries. Because I think boundaries are another, like, the big, the B word. (laughs) Uh, Why are boundaries so hard to set, Andrea? Oh, we want everyone to like us. I know. (laughs) And how do you, 
How have you gotten better at them over the years? Like you share an anecdote of saying no to something professionally and Ugh. not even feeling like you had to explain yourself. Yeah. It's like boundary grad school. Talk. These are so hard. I'm not going to lie. Why are these so hard? I think this is hardwired too, by the way. I think yeah. something about saying no. And because I know for a fact, like being socially, for a fact, but I don't have the science either, <laughs> but that being socially ostracized is like we have a greater like a fear of death, of being yeah. cast aside out of the social group because that mm-hmm. also is necessary for survival. But why are they so hard? I was telling Andrea. Sorry, little tangent, but I want to just keep it real on this show. I was in tears bef- like five minutes before calling Andrea on Skype because people had been making requests and I'm feeling a little depleted. I had just come home from a trip. I'm leaving for another one. And just because I'm depleted, so these these requests felt like personal insults. Mm-hmm. And I was just like angry at the people making them. And it's not their fault. They have no way to know. It just is obviously one of those red flags that I it's time for me to say no and reset myself and recharge. But it's so hard. It feels horrible to set them sometimes, even if yeah. we know that it's necessary. Boundaries are vulnerable. Like Setting a boundary is one of the many vulnerable things that we do. And so when we're intentional about it, it's like we're intentionally putting ourselves out there and putting ourselves at risk because this goes back to what I was just talking about. So I'm sure that in your career, you don't want to be seen as inflexible or unreasonable. Um, you don't want to be seen as a bitch, hard to work with, like that type, right? Is that fair? Absolutely. Okay. So when you have to tell people no, and you're setting a boundary about what you just described, you're running that risk because yeah. you don't have any control over what they're going to think of it. You don't have any control if they're going to receive those emails or phone calls and be like, well, that Jenny sure is, you know, <laughs> God, she won't right. even do that. They, they may be like, okay, that's fine. Or they may get upset about it. And so we know this typically at an unconscious level. And, and for many of us, we, we, it's conscious, but that's why we avoid them because we don't want to risk that at all ever, ever, because that puts us at risk. Definitely. There's a biological factor of it because you know, the term burning bridges, if you burn that bridge, like you might die, you might not be able to be a part of that group anymore. And so, yeah, our old brains are so weird how they're, how they're wired. But at the end of the day, what it comes down to, and this is, I talk about this in the book too, is, is knowing what your values are and knowing what's important about the way you live your life and having those hard conversations in a way that makes you proud of who you are. I think boundaries get a bad rap too. And people might think of boundaries as being confrontational and, um, you know, disagreeable and, and, oppositional. And that's not at all what they are. I I don't want you to set a boundary with me like that. You know, people, people, communication 101, people are typically going to be open to hearing what you have to say. If you are kind and you are grateful and you are open to conversation, but still be firm about it. And that's what boundaries are. There's like a step-by-step process that I give in there. And I'm not going to say that it's easy, but it's nicer when you have some kind of (laughs) template to work from. Well, I like I like that you say it isn't going to be easy. I mean, maybe sometimes, but for the most part, don't even expect it to be easy. <laughs> Just expect mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's hard to say no. But I also, one thing that's super powerful that you say in the people pleasing section is that people pleasers tend to lie. They actually yeah. say yes to things they don't want to do. And so rather than being authentic and saying a kind and graceful no and and 
doing everybody a favor. What people pleasers do is they say yes, and then they resent it. And then and they then get mad. They, and then mm-hmm. they get mad. And if they don't get mad in that moment, Gretchen Rubin talks about this in her new book of obligers, that obligers will sometimes like explode. They'll just yeah. shut down and completely go on protest of their entire life because... They've said yes too much. I've seen that with moms a lot. And yeah, in the work I do, we call that offloading hurt where, um, and it's called chandeliering where someone will like hit the roof. You see that in road rage. You see that at sporting events, people fighting. And yeah, that's what a lot of times what that is. What's one that you still struggle with? In terms of boundaries or one of the the habits? Let's say one of the habits, one of the 14. Um, you know what one has been coming up is imposter syndrome. And you know, what's funny is that when I wrote the book, I knew it was common for a lot of my readers. And if I had to look at all of them, I would say the zero fucks mentality is probably not one that I struggle with as well as imposter syndrome. So then I have this new book coming out. Oh, totally. Like it's, it's upper limit stuff too. And that's how it looks for me. And where not so much that I feel like that I feel like people are going to, a lot of people who struggle with imposter syndrome for people listening who aren't familiar with it, it's feeling like a fraud that, that feeling of when is everybody going to figure out? I don't have any idea what I'm doing. That's not really how I feel. Like I'm, I'm secure in the fact that I do know what I'm doing and I feel confident in, in what I know. But for me, it's, it's the things like when I had to shoot my video trailer or the video shoot where I had, you know, makeup and hair and and nicer clothes. And I'm like, Oh my God, like, please nobody watch this video. (laughs) It feels like it's that, it's that upper limit. Like, Oh, I am at next, this is next level. And, and that's where I start to feel like a fraud. Like I don't belong here. Like at this level, that's how imposter syndrome shows up for me. So yeah, that's uncomfortable. I can understand that. I also think there's a flip side. I'm curious to hear your thoughts that relates to what we were saying about Bendy on Instagram, because I was recently getting hair and makeup done for the shooting this LinkedIn learning video series. And I remember telling the makeup artist, please do not put too much makeup. I want to look like myself. There are too many people that don't even look like themselves uh-huh. when you when we do this stuff. And part of me, I wore a dress, just a plain blue, like something to look neutral on camera and had hair and makeup. But there was a part of me that felt like, y'all, this is how I look five days a year. (laughs) (laughs) Like the other 360, I am in yoga clothes. Right now, my hair is wet. It's up in a bun. I'm literally in yoga pants and a yoga shirt Mm -hmm. recording in a walk-in closet. Yeah. What are you wearing? (laughs) Wow, this just got like X-rated. What did you say? What did you say? I'm in sweats too. In sweats. Yeah. So I think part of, I mean, I don't mean to be a bad empathizer. I want to come back to all those funny terms of what empathy is not. But um, I don't know. I wonder if some of our reaction is, is just not wanting to perpetuate also a myth of, because we know what's on the other side of it. Yeah. And, and to clarify, I think what all like the, the more of the story is that when I do these things like photo shoots and video shoots, and it's all these, all these things that are putting into place to pave the way for something bigger for me. And that's really where the imposter syndrome comes in is like, I, I kind of half joke that like when I get uncomfortable in situations like that, I feel like a 
someone trying to give a cat a bath. If you've ever tried to give a cat a bath, like in a bathtub, you know, like it's just bad. Like the cat's trying to get out and like scratching. Like that's how I feel in situations like that. And so for instance, when I, when my first book came out, several years ago, I did one book event and it was in San Diego, my hometown where I knew 95% of the people that were going to show up. It was comfortable for me. And looking back on that, the reason that I did that was because I felt like if I did multiple cities, I was both equally terrified that no one would show up and that everyone would show up. So if everyone would show up, I was like, oh my God, I have all these fears. And I just, it, it was, again, it was that like new level, new devil. And that's what I, I was trying to avoid. That. Yeah. I don't remember who said that. So I can't give them credit. It was some author, but like every time we up-level our life, many times the inner critic changes its story. And it's like, for many of us, I think for for probably many, many of your listeners have worked on the inner critic. So we don't have the feelings of you're an idiot. You should never try this. Like we've bypassed that. But what we hear is, Ooh, who do you think you are? And and that's or how like, this is a little too big for you. This is, yeah, like, you pat, maybe pat. not so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, you definitely deserve everything that's come so far, but ooh, ooh this next opportunity, what? you really, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's what I hear too. That's the narrative that I hear. And so, and it's just another level and it's, it's wading through that. That's where I've been struggling. And it's funny because when, as this book, new book approached, I sort of could see it coming. Cause I saw it happen the last time and I'm like, Oh, I know what's coming. So I could kind of prepare myself for it and know that I needed to do the work because before it took me by surprise and I hid for four months after my first book came out. It was too scary. It was too vulnerable. I I couldn't handle all the love and praise and joy and everything. Mm. And with this book, now I know it's coming. So I'm doing the work. Like I am going and doing stuff that is scary. I'm going to be so uncomfortable. My chest is going to be all red and broken out. Like I already know. That used to happen to me too. It's my physiological reaction to feeling so anxious and uncomfortable. And it's just about showing up because I want to be on my deathbed and be proud of how I showed up, even if it was so incredibly uncomfortable. I love it. That's the best. I found that's the best thing too. It's not to reject any of these feelings. It's just to keep showing up. Yeah. Ugh. Yes. I know. <laughs> uh, Andrea, because I because I teased it, I want to just read this. I laughed out loud at the section. What empathy is not the one upper, the poo pooer, the at leaster, the fixer, the gasper, or the make it about me? Can you just give us all like what? Show us, show us how to be empathetic <laughs> listeners because we're probably all guilty of these things at some oh, point totally. or another. I've totally, I was probably the fixer and oh, yeah. So too. it's the person. Well, check out yeah. this book. <laughs> yes. Yes. Have you tried marriage counseling? Like, you know, like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So the, the Gasper is the person who like, can't believe that you got yourself into that situation. And the poo pooer is the person that tells you it wasn't that bad. So I should back up. Like it's, if you share something with someone and like a hard thing that happened, like, Oh, I got this really bad review on Amazon, you know, and it was awful. And they said these awful things about my book. You know, there, there might be the person who tells you it wasn't that bad. The person who says like, well, maybe you shouldn't have even written books if you didn't want people to (laughs) criticize you. Um, then there's, there might be the person who makes it about 
them mm-hmm. or like, or, or just like bypasses your story and tells you about something that happened to them that has nothing to do with your problem. And then the one upper is the person who is like trying to relate. And this is when this one can get tricky because there is one thing about relating and saying to, to someone like, I have absolutely been there, but then it crosses the line when you say, I've absolutely been there and let me talk about it for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, that is when someone shares something hard with us, it's uncomfortable for both parties, right? Like if you shared with me something hard, I want to make you feel better partially because I care about you and partially because I am uncomfortable with your discomfort and I don't want to feel it. And it can be so hard to know what to say. That's it just is at least for me. We don't, that's not a class that we take in college and Although it should be, but now there's, there's books out there about it. And there's a couple of, I, I give a couple of examples, I think in my book, but, <laughs> but like, yes. I'll just to not leave people empty handed, I'll just say, you know, what you could say is that sounds so difficult and I'm so glad you told me. Mm. That's it. That's a great one. That's a great one. Andrea, I could truly talk to you about this all day long. All day. Let's Let's, just make it like a six hour podcast. Yeah, actually, that'd be so fun. We'll just go Joe Rogan style. (laughs) Yes, Andrea. I see a a part two to this where we do that. That'd be so fun. I would love to. I would absolutely love to. Um, Recently, I've been asking people, what's one piece of homework that you would give to listeners? So they, they put down their phone or wherever they're listening and they go do one thing. What would it be? I would want them to rewind and go back to the part where I was talking about knowing what your triggers are. I'm not going to give them anything additional because it's, you know, overload, but that can change your life. Compartmentalize all of the areas of your life and then write down what your triggers are, what your unwanted identities are, how you would never want to be seen by other people that would be just absolutely mortifying. Those are your triggers and, and know them inside and out. Cause whether you know them or not, they're running your life. You are, you are behaving based on those unwanted identities. So when you know them, you can get out in front of them faster. And that's what we were talking about earlier. That's the goal. I love it. That's so, such a such a great piece of advice and not easy to do, folks. Nope. Get ready. <laughs> not what you signed up for when you listen to this podcast. Totally. You're like, oh, now I have that gross, itchy feeling where it's like, damn it. I know she's right. Got to go do oh. it. I love it. Andrea, I love it. I love you. I'm so grateful for you and the work that you do and who you are in the world. Thank you for everything. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful for this conversation and this friendship and all of you people listening. And yeah, it's just, let's just spend the next 20 minutes validating each other. Oh, shall yeah, we? That sounds great. That sounds great. A little, a little joy parade. <laughs> Perfect. Andrea, thank you so much. And big thanks to everyone who's here listening. It does feel vulnerable, right? Like I, I almost have a vulnerability hangover just once I stop hitting record, like yes. to know that this will go live. <laughs> okay. But for real though, Andrea, I'm sure I'll have you back soon. Thank you. I would love to be here. Thanks everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips and templates by signing up for Pivot List, a curated twice monthly newsletter where I share the inside scoop on what I'm reading, watching, listening to, and the latest tools I'm geeking out on. Sign up at pivotmethod.com slash pivotlist. 
Get show notes from this episode at pivotmethod.com slash podcast and connect with me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. Remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always?